Well, good morning, everybody. I'll go ahead and begin while you guys gradually make your way. Um, let me slide this up a little bit more. Huh? Hello, hello. Can you still hear me? Okay. There we go. For a while there, I thought this was the mic, but it's not. Okay. I'm going to try to put her down a little bit here. How's that? Okay. I think we're good. Hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to the firehouse. My name is Tim, and uh, one of the uh, pastors here. Uh, by the way, i got to say happy Cinco de Mayo. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, how many think that Cinco de Mayo is the day that the Mexicans celebrate their independence from Spain? Oh, that's pretty good. How many think it's not? There's a lot of you that didn't answer either way in there, but uh, you know, that's right, it's not. Who knows what it does celebrate? The bat, what's that? Yes, the Battle of Puebla, which is the fourth largest city in Mexico. I was surprised to read that. Right behind Guadalajara, number three. Number two, I don't remember the name of, but it's not Monterey. And number one is Mexico City. But it happened back in our Civil War days, back in 1862. And uh, it was prior to that that uh, Benito Juarez was having trouble paying their bills. And so uh, he actually suspended making their payments to Spain and France and Great Britain, which then those guys got together and established a treaty among themselves in 1861 to go to Mexico to get those payments. But they didn't realize, but Spain anyway and Great Britain did not realize, was that um, Napoleon III, who is a descendant, shirt tail of Napoleon I, his designs wasn't debt collection. He wanted to colonize Mexico. And when they found that out, Spain and Great Britain went home. And then uh, France, Napoleon III, sent reinforcements. They did invade uh, Mexico. And the first stop for Mexico City was the Battle of Puebla. And there against great odds in that first battle of Puebla, the Mex Mexicans defeated the French. And that's really what Cinco de Mayo commemorates as I understand it. And I'm glad Leo's not here and Linda right now while I'm sharing this story. Um, but uh, I know it's not that big in Mexico. It's big in Puebla. I guess in Puebla it's the biggest event of the year. Uh, but here in the United States, Cinco de Mayo has taken on a whole new character. It really doesn't commemorate that big event in 1862, uh, what it commemorates, it seems like, is more just being a Mexican nationality. Isn't it more of a celebration of our identity as Mexicans? And I think that's really true with March 17th for the Irish. And whatever day Oktoberfest falls on for the Germans and, you know, Italians, I guess, maybe Christopher Columbus Day, I don't know. But it made me wonder this morning, you know, oh, oh here's Leo, I've got to start, you know, correcting my story now. But it made me wonder uh, this morning if, um, uh, if we as Christians uh, should have a day. And then it realized, you know, those of us who place Christianity above our nationalities. But then I realized, you know what, uh, every day for us, every day is a celebration of who we are. Every day celebrates the fact that we are Christ followers, people that love Jesus and want to follow him with our lives. And so 
today we'll just celebrate uh, our being Christians and Jesus followers. We're going to continue our series today. Uh, we're really in the midst of a year-long teaching schedule. We finished phase one a couple of weeks ago, which was really trying to remind us all and lay the foundation that what we believe more than anything here at the firehouse is that God loves us. It's God's grace that saves us. It's not by works, but by faith that we're saved. And uh, that's just so exciting, that knowing that God's grace reaches down and loves us. And that's the foundation for everything else we do. So now that we're in phase two, where we're looking at certain habits of a disciple, again, we've got to be careful that we don't forget that those habits are a byproduct of God's love for us and His grace for us and saving us apart from anything we can do to earn it. And with that love as a foundation, we now then try to please the Lord through certain habits that we pursue, whether it's the quiet time or... Today we're going to talk about being worshipers, people that as disciples want to follow the Lord by worshiping Him. And so we'll talk about that here. And what do you say we just pray and commit this time to the Lord and help? just pray that He helps us become greater worshipers of Him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day and the opportunity to be together here at the firehouse. Really an opportunity to be with you. Lord, we just pray. Um, think of that quote. Inside every man there's a God space vacuum that only Christ can fill. Lord, uh, we want to, you to be filling us today. Help us to be closer to you, connected to you, refresh us, encourage us in our faith. Lord, we want to be uh, reminded of your precious promises, not only for the present, but even for the future, that we'll see you one day face to face. Father, in these brief moments today, I pray that uh, you would draw us to you, draw us to one another. Help us, Lord, to uh, be better followers of, of Jesus. Help people see you in us. And we just ask you, uh, cause your spirit, Lord, to richly bless us this morning as we consider the topic of worship and how we can grow in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm not sure if Rich is here right now or not, or he may be in the back, but I don't see him. But this uh, story that I want to tell you actually took place in Rich's backyard in New Mexico, about 40 miles south of Roswell. And this was uh, in a little town called Lake Arthur. Uh, you're probably expecting, you know, kind of a, you know, an alien from outer space story here, but this is not that. That's that's another one of Rich's neighbors that uh, we'll talk about another time. But this is in 1977, 40 miles south of Roswell. There was a lady by the name of Maria Rubio who was fixing breakfast for her husband Eduardo Rubio, and it was then in her kitchen, over the oven, looking into the skillet, that it happened. That there in the skillet, on the tortilla that she was frying in the skillet, etched in that tortilla in burn marks, was the face of Jesus Christ. And that became such an amazing thing to her that Eduardo did not get his breakfast that morning. Needless to say, Eduardo went hungry and the tortilla went into the shrine. Uh, the Shrine of Jesus of the Tortilla. And uh, there's actually a picture here online of that uh, tortilla. Oops, number two. 
and you can't really see Jesus. I think this is many years later where the image was beginning to dissipate. You see a few little black dots in there. I'm not sure if it's a profile or a frontal view of Jesus here. But she put some cotton there around the tortilla, which is uh, kind of impressive. It makes Jesus look like he's coming in the clouds or something. But that was uh, really an incredible shrine, and she really dressed it up. And she put this shrine in her backyard in a little, in a little shed that was open 24-7, 365 days a year, so that people could go there any time, and it would be open to them to see and worship at the tortilla. And uh, that tortilla was worshipped for 28 years. You know, I would go there just to see a 28-year-old tortilla. I mean, I'm amazed by that. I didn't even know they can last that long. But during this little shed, people would come. In fact, you'd be surprised. Even within the first 35, or first few years, this little shrine had 35,000 visitors. You thought I was going to say 35, didn't you? 35,000 visitors came to this shrine. Isn't that amazing? And I want to tell you, they were devout believers, many of them. I mean, it's kind of funny to me, it's kind of funny to you. In a way, it's kind of sad that they would worship this tortilla. And it was worshipped until 2005 when it met its demise. Maria and Eduardo's granddaughter took the tortilla to school for show and tell. Yep, it was there at show and tell that the granddaughter dropped the tortilla. And as with any 28-year-old tortilla, it, it just disintegrated into pieces. And of course, uh, Maria gathered those pieces very religiously and carefully. And to this day, uh, those pieces are all assembled and in her top dresser drawer, uh, where they remain uh, for easy access. Uh, it's just not quite as uh, worshipful, I guess, looking at them. But you know, people are like that, aren't we? You know, we are really designed to worship, but what's scary is that we can, we can actually end up worshiping all kinds of things, even tortillas. People worship cows, some, in some religions. Some view cows as one of the highest forms of reincarnation. There are those that worship cows because of it. There are those that worship music. There are those of us that can worship our desires and passions, our friends. There are those of us that can worship statues and icons of various sorts. We worship, some of us, our intellect or maybe our skills, things we can do. We worship money. We worship sports. And I see, you know, Mr. Corner over there, you know, kind of squirming in his chair when I said sports. We worship kids. We worship family. You know, we can just worship most anything where that something becomes preeminent in our lives. It becomes the focal point of our lives. It's what consumes us. It's, what, it's really what draws our hearts and our passions. And what is kind of scary about this is according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, we become what we worship. Yes, there are probably some that have become tortillas because that's what they worship. But you know what's so sad about it is when you reduce God to a, a little part of his creation, that's all you can become if that's what you worship. That's why in the Bible it says, have no other God besides me. That's the first commandment. The second is don't make a graven image. Don't reduce me to something you can see because that's all you can become. 
You'll see me in my full splendor, in my glorious person of who I am, and spend a lifetime understanding the glory of my nature. And that's what you can become. You know, it's really why, and I've mentioned it before, if you've ever seen the movie The 300, right? Those Spartans, do you know who they worshipped? The God of War. That's why they were so Aries, yes. And that's why they were so, so good at warring. And then in Athens, what, who do they worship? Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And so they became philosophers. And if you go to Corinth, who do they worship? They worship the goddess of fertility, Aphrodite. And they became really, in one sense, uh, you know, sexual perverts. And even in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses that sin in the Christians' lives there at Corinth, who had had that background in their secular life prior to becoming Christians. On the Acropolis, outside of Corinth, in the temple, a thousand prostitutes as their form of worship. You know, so it's amazing. And so even though there are those that worship different kinds of forms of gods, God longs for us to be worshipers of Him, the true God. There are those, however, that uh, completely, uh, going backwards on this one, there are those uh, who have completely rejected God. Some do reject God. And uh, here are a, a few thoughts for us in Psalm 14. I'd like to read this psalm if I could. In Psalm 14, verse 1, it says this, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The good the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They've all turned aside. Together they have been corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 4, not, Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You should be put to shame. You would be put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. You know, this is a short psalm. And it speaks about the foolishness of someone who has rejected God. But I, for the first time, kind of noticed how similar it was to Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, or Psalm 53 rather, I'm going to jump to that psalm as well. In Psalm 53, uh, we begin, and I'm just going to read the key verse on each of these verses. Verse 1, the fool has said in his heart... Psalm 53.1, verse 2, God has looked down from heaven. And you can follow the Psalm 14 to see the similarities. In verse 3, every one of them has turned aside. Verse 4, have the workers of wickedness no knowledge? Verse 5, there they were in great fear. Verse 6, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come from Zion. These two Psalms are identical. And I'd never really noticed that before, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. But then, you know, there is one big difference between these two psalms. Just really understood that this week for the first time. Each psalm picks a different word for the word God, a different Hebrew word. Psalm 14 uses the word Jehovah, and Psalm 53 uses the word Elohim. And those are two different, completely different words for the word God in Hebrew. Jehovah is the personal God, the covenant 
God-bearing God, the God that loves you, the God that knows you, the God that wants the best for you. He's a personal God. He's got a future for you. He's got plans for you. That's Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. And there are those in Psalm 14 who reject this personal God. They might be deists. They might even believe in a God, but they don't believe He's personal. You know, every time that we say in our heart of hearts that God doesn't have a future for me, or, guys, there's no reason to live, or there's no purpose for life, we become practical deists. We become the people Psalm 14 refers to. People that don't really believe in Jehovah, the God who's a covenant keeper for us in our personal lives. But Psalm 53 addresses those that don't believe in Elohim. They're fools that don't believe in Elohim, the powerful, sovereign God of the universe. Atheists, agnostics fall into that camp. And so these are people that have rejected, as some do, have rejected their God. And it is, uh, maybe even you can put in there us when we're double-minded. We may not always be atheists or agnostics who don't believe in the all-powerful God, but maybe sometimes we get confused and go back and forth in our beliefs. Again, it's foolish for us to do that. You know, it's foolish because it's irrational not to believe in God. It's irrational to be a deist or an atheist or an agnostic because, number one, when you're one of those folks who deny God in that way, you yourself are claiming that you're omniscient. You're actually ascribing to yourself an attribute that should only be ascribed to God because, you know, you're all-knowing. And God cannot possibly exist out of your body of knowledge. So in one sense... You're actually claiming that for yourself, that we should only attribute to God, or you're omnipresent. There's no place on planet Earth that you can't be simultaneously, and so therefore there can't be a God if you don't know that there's a God, because He can't be somewhere that you're not already there. So in a sense, you're omnipresent also. And of course... To deny Jehovah and Elohim, as Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 says, is foolish. It's foolish because you deny so much evidence in the world to the contrary. You know, I'd like to read this little statement here. Um, it's just about the beauty of the earth. And you can talk a lot about the creation, but this is specifically to the earth and its position in the cosmos. The earth rotates on its axis 1,000 miles per hour. So it's rotating. If it were 100 miles per hour, our days and nights would be 10 times longer and our planet would alternately burn and freeze. Under such circumstances, vegetation could not grow. If the earth were as small as the moon, the power of gravity would be too weak to retain the atmosphere we need to breathe. But if it were as large as Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, extreme gravitation would make human movement almost impossible. If it were as near to the sun as Venus, the heat would be unbearable. If we were as far away as Mars even, our neighbors, we would experience snow and ice every night, even in the warmest regions. If the oceans were half their present dimensions, we would receive only one-fourth the rainfall we do now. If they were, were one-eighth larger, our annual precipitation would increase fourfold. 
and this earth would become a vast uninhabitable swamp. Water solidifies at 30 degrees uh, above zero Fahrenheit. It would be disastrous if the oceans froze at that temperature, though. However, for then the amount of thawing in the polar regions would not balance out and ice would accumulate throughout the centuries. To prevent this catastrophe, the Lord put salt into the sea to alter the freezing point. Last night I was helping my daughter Fiona with her biology and we were talking about the Human Genome Project from 1990 to 2003 where they were really trying to map out the human genome in those 13 years and really the, it was just astounding just reading a little bit about that. You know, that didn't exist when I was in high school, the Genome Project and how there's just billions of points on those chromosomes and genes that define who we are. Billions. It's just an amazing thing. It's a fool, though, who says there is no God. It's a fool who says there's no Jehovah. It's a fool who says there's no Elohim. Psalm 14, Psalm 53. You know, there are those, though, that will not just reject God. Um, Let me see here. We'll move ahead to this next one. For some reason, I'm not advancing. Let's see. Can we advance slides? There are some that will reject God. But uh, I probably pushed that button they told me never to touch. <laughs> I think I'm not sure which one that was now. Oh, there we go. Some create their own God. Some create their own God. And go ahead and just put those points down. Of course, you can go back to the beginning of the time on this. I'll just start with Cain and Abel. You can go back to Adam and Eve. But remember the story of Cain and Abel, Abel after the fall. After... Uh, Adam and Eve sinned. We're not told when, but they were instructed to sacrifice an atonement, a sacrifice. It would remind them of their sin, their need for God. And it would also look forward to the coming of the Christ in that sacrifice that Adam and Eve and their children were told to to perform. Because that lamb being slain would be an image, a picture of the Christ that would one day be slain for their sins. And they were given that promise. They said a seed would come of the woman who had crushed the serpent on its head. And that seed is the Christ. But this lamb you sacrifice as, as a reminder of your sin is, uh, is that, a picture of that seed that would one day come. And so Cain brought his sacrifice to the Lord, but he refused to do as God said, and he just brought his vegetables. Abel brought his lamb and sacrificed the lamb. And we're not sure how they sensed this, but Cain and Abel, it says, they, they knew that, Cain knew that God was not pleased with his sacrifice. See, Cain decided that he was going to be his own God. And Cain decided he was going to worship his God as he wanted to worship his God, not as God has asked him to worship him. And that's uh, unlike Abel, his brother. And God told Cain, to look, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. He became jealous of Abel because of this. Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it or it will destroy you. And isn't that true for all of our lives? Sin can really destroy our lives if we don't master that sin. In his case, it destroyed Cain because that jealousy turned to murder and he murdered his brother Abel. Because he did not follow God's instructions and how God wanted to be worshipped. The nation of Israel, in Exodus, were given the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment was, you know, that we should have no other gods besides me. God, more than anything else, wanted that nation of his Israel that he was uh, really 
wanting to groom into the nation that would spawn the Savior. He wanted that nation to have no other gods. He wanted them to worship Him. Matthew 22, verse 37, we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In Psalm 18.26, it says to the astute, God appears astute. You know, to the straight, He appears straight. To the pure, He appears pure. In one sense, our morality defines our concept of God. Our morality defines our theology, in one sense. Our creed defines our conduct. And if we have chosen to turn away from God in sin, if we've chosen self-indulgence, you know, in time it will begin to affect our concept of God. Because we won't be able to look ourselves in the mirror and be satisfied with who we are if we know we're hypocrites. So what do we do? We, we change our theology to match our behavior. That's the tendency. And so people can do this. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, a passage I'd like to read to you, starting in verse 18 in Romans. And in this passage... Um, it says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They professed to be wise, but they became fools. Not intellectual fools, but moral fools who rejected God. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to their lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than worshipping and serving the Creator who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. And you know, I think sometimes we can talk about what sounds like bad people here, but I think we Christians can do the same thing. We can create our own God. You know, some of you know this story better than I because I've heard it many times. And I've shared it many times, but I've forgotten it now since it's been so long since I've shared it. But it's that guy that uh, wrote that song, Return to a Heart of Worship. Or the, you all know what I'm talking about, the heart of worship. And I think he was a worship leader in a church, maybe in Great Britain. But he got the sense that the people that are coming to church were just coming really to feel the music, to experience the program, not really worship God. And so for a time he just eradicated the music and just did a cappella to try to get people's hearts back in worship to the Lord, to God. And uh, he later did write a song with music, music called The Heart of Worship, Returning to the Heart of Worship. Because it's so easy for us as Christians to begin to worship really the singing, the music, you know, the service. I liked one story I stumbled on by about a guy named Henry Ward Beecher. Now, we may not know him, but he lived in the Civil War era. 
and his sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it was Lincoln who said to Harriet Beecher Stowe, his sister, are you the little lady that started this great big war, referring to the Civil War, in her writing of the book, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. But her brother was one of the greatest preachers of the day as well. Abraham Lincoln went to hear him preach. Mark Twain went to hear him preach. This man by the name of Henry Ward Beecher. What an incredible preacher and personality. And an amazing story because as a child he stuttered. And he had to you know, get over that and then went to oratory school and so forth and so on. But one day he was going to be gone from the pulpit. He asked his brother Tom, who was also a minister, to come and speak at his church in his place. And when he got there, people, when he stood up to the pulpit, people got up to leave. People actually got up to leave because it wasn't his famous brother, Henry Ward Beecher. And so Thomas, thinking on his feet, said, Look, if anyone wants to leave, of course leave. If you came to you know, worship my brother Henry, please feel free to leave. But if you're here to worship God, please take your seat. You know, I'm not sure if any came back or not, but uh, probably put a few people in their place. I know that you could probably find a better sermon somewhere here in Denver than listen to me today. But are you here to listen to me or are you here to worship the Lord? And it's not really about me, is it? Or about who speaks or how good they are or anything else. It really, I think we come together on Sunday mornings to refresh our spirit of worshiping God. And again, that's what we want to be, are worshipers of God. We're created to do that. You know, I will say this also. Um, some worship God in spirit and truth. And we can see this uh, question. I'll raise it. It's in your handout here as well. And by the way, I do have handouts back there. Um, let me see here. Uh, can I have a few volunteers just pass those out? Uh, at least you can take them home and file it under W in your file cabinet for worship there. The greatest question of our time isn't between communism and individualism. This was written by Will and Marion Durant, the great historians. They have a set of history books this long. And uh, they were very famous. And they wrote this uh, kind of a summary of their historical perspective it's not between communism and individualism. And Will Durant died in 1981, which was before the fall of communism. So it's kind of prophetic. And then he said it's not America versus Europe or the East versus the West. The greatest question of our time is, can man bear to live without God? Perhaps you could add in there is the greatest question, radical Islam versus the West. I'm not sure how you'd respond to that, but I think you'd say the same thing. The greatest question isn't what evil is needing to be fought in our day. The greatest question is, in our day, will we be worshipers of God? Now, that's the greatest question. The word anthropos is uh, one who looks up. That's what the Greek word means. And that's where we get the name for mankind, isn't it? The study of man. Anthropology. Mankind was designed to look up. We're designed to be worshipers. We're designed to want God. We can twist it, though, by rejecting God and putting ourselves in His place. We can create our own gods. Or we can worship God in spirit and in truth. In first, 
in John chapter 4, 23-24, we read this. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. Oh, this is actually 1 Corinthians. This is a verse that uh, really does speak to the fact that we become who we worship. 2 Corinthians 3.13 But an hour is coming, Jesus says, and now is in John chapter 4. When the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, he's saying these words to a Samaritan woman. And she uh, was a woman that he met at a well. In John chapter 4, we relate the story. But uh, she was basically saying to Jesus in this conversation, you know, you Jews say that we've got to worship on uh, the temple in Jerusalem. We Samaritans, we have Mount Gerizim, and that's where we worship God, or that's where we say you're supposed to worship God. One or the other. Which is it? She's asking Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, the day is going to come. And now is. When it's not going to be in Jerusalem, and it's not going to be in Samaria, people are going to worship God in spirit and truth anywhere. World over. On the moon, it doesn't matter. They will worship the Lord in spirit, and they will worship in truth, and it's those people that Jesus is seeking as his worshipers. Not the ones that create their own God and create their own way to worship that God or you know, go back and forth, double-minded, whether there is a God or atheist. Like not. God is looking for people that will be true worshipers of His in spirit and in truth. And that's what He told this lady. And this lady, He mentioned to her, she said, you know, I know that you've got five... She said to her, her husband's in the house or whatever. He said, I know you've got five husbands and the man you've got right now is not your husband. And she said, you know, I perceive you're a prophet. And she went and she told people all about Jesus. She saw her need and she saw his greatness and it caused her to worship Jesus. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. Why? So he can make them worshipers. And I'd like to read one other uh, passage and it's about Peter. And this is found in Luke 5, 4 through 11. Matthew, Mark, Luke 5, 4 through 11. Peter and his comrades had been fishing all night. Verse 4. Jesus was speaking to some people actually using Simon's empty boat that was there. They shoved off and Jesus got in the boat and preached. And when Jesus was done speaking, Simon who had fished all night... Uh, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, by the way, take this boat now and go into the deep water and let down your net for a catch. Simon said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the, the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break, and they signaled to their partners on the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and he said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. And when they had caught, had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
This is their business, fishing. And that was the best day of business they ever had. Most people don't quit business on the best day you've ever had. You think about selling your business when you're, you know, when, uh, when you're having some struggles. Uh, but this is the best day of business they'd ever had. They left everything and they followed Jesus. And that's the final point. Worship. Proceeds service. Proceeds worship. Worship precedes service. It's because we worship the Lord we want to serve Him. It's because they worship God they left everything to follow Him. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is spiritual service of worship. And so, as we think about this subject, you know, we're challenged with this thought. We've got to see our need. You've got to see your need if you're going to be a worshiper of God. The Samaritan woman did. Peter did. And when you see your need and combine it with your recognition of how great God is, you will fall at His feet. And you will want to serve Him. You will want to leave everything and follow Him. All those other gods, you're just going to reject them. You want the one true God and all that He is and all that He offers. And that's my prayer for us. That as the psalmist said in Psalm 27, 4, we too would say, there's only really one thing we ask of the Lord, and we shall seek that we may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for this day. Father, there's so much of life that bears down upon me that um, I often forget the one thing that I want most. It's the one thing you want most from us. You're seeking worshipers and it's the one thing we want to be. Our worshipers of you. Those that see their need, our need, my need, and those that see your greatness. You are the great Jehovah. You are the great Elohim. And we are but dust. But because of your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord, we are your children. And we thank you for that. Lord, might our service follow our worship uh, this week, this day. Continue to lead and bless us as we grow in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.